0: And welcome to the first official episode of Pine Copper Lime, the Internet's number one contemporary printmaking podcast. My guest on this first episode is Ho. Hung. Jin is a British-Chinese artist who specializes in making prints. She's done a lot of linocut lately. Book arts and other works on paper. We had a great chat about her life, how she came to printmaking, and how a recent turn of events in her family has affected her practice dramatically. Give it a listen. And if you like what you hear, please review and subscribe to my podcast. Without further ado, here's Moon Jean. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for joining me.
1: It's so nice to hear you.
0: Are you having fun in Australia? I definitely am. The wallabies yeah. are in the backyard every night and the possums and everything. It's an upside down world, but I'm getting used to it. About two months in, I'm starting to finally find my feet, I think.
1: Oh, that's so nice. Is the moon really the other way up? Oh, I've never Something. heard that. <laughs>
0: I don't think I've taken a close enough look at the moon since I've been here. Okay. <laughs> I think I did see the toilets flushing the other direction, though, the other day, finally. <laughs> That's true, <group>, really? <laughs> Maybe now that I'm done looking down, I can start looking up <laughs> at the moon. <laughs> yeah, cause, because they're, um, you know, they're as you can imagine, they're all low-flow toilets to save water, and so you can't actually, for most of them... You can't really see the spiral, but I think I I officially saw it going the other direction. Well, I think this is a great start to your episode. We're already talking about toilets flushing.
1: Because I feel comfortable with
0: you. (laughs) Yep, exactly. It's because our friendship, we've got a level of comfort. (laughs) Um, But for our listeners who don't know you, would you mind introducing yourself, telling everyone where you come
1: from, where you work, what your practice is like. I'm an artist printmaker living in London, and my parents are from Malaysian Singapore. I was born in Oxford, and I grew up in this kind of amazing, beautiful university town, feeling like a little bit like an outsider in my home country. And um, I made my first print when I was 11. I went to an art fair in a field called Art in Action, and they had this class, of, I think you had to be over eight, So you had a line-cut class that you could do that was 45 minutes long. And I made my first print of a cat on a roof, which I really loved. It was like an um, eye-opening technique, the idea that you could make something... And then carve it and then you'd have this matrix that you could make many images from, I thought was great. And I love the kind of, you know, challenge of doing things back to front and upside down and figuring out what my line would become after it gone through this medium. So I've been making these kind of little lino cuts at home and my mom let me use the kitchen table to print on. And so... I used to just make um, minor cuts in my spare time at school until I went to college to train to become a vet um, because my dad was a vet and he really wanted me to carry on the family business. So I did um, a vet degree while making prints at college and um, have slowly been working my way towards an um, art career ever since. Mm. That's great. Does that sound a bit strange, really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I love it. It's a bit of a kind of, I don't know, a back-to-front life. I grew up in a vet practice, and um, my dad was a vet, and my mom was the vet nurse, and we lived next doors to the surgery. So from the age of six, I was... Well, according to my dad, I was sitting on his lap watching him do surgery. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's really very good um, hygiene practice. But anyway, (laughs) um, they were very keen for me to take on the family business. So I went to university to train as a vet when I was 18 because it was expected of me. Mm. But I really loved making art and making prints. So I spent the whole of college. Um, designing posters actually for Hmm. various um, like amateur dramatics and you know musicals and things like that I'd I'd approach various producers and directors and say do you need a poster for your play (laughs) I can make one if you pay me enough money to buy the paper and the art materials Hmm. so that was my side project that I did throughout college
0: And then so was there, was your father and mother, were they also makers? Where do you think it came from, the impulse?
1: Well, I've been asked this several times because both my parents say that they're incredibly scientific. And my mom says she loves maths and sports when she was younger. And my dad was always um, keen on, you know, sports, bodybuilding and, you know, running and swimming. But at the same time, I know my mom's incredibly ingenious with the materials around her. She's always seeing new um, uses for everyday objects. She's got this beautiful plant called Queen of the Night and it's a kind of luscious, strange, tropical plant that it it kind of responds incredibly quickly to the light and you can almost see it grow. It's got this and it grows towards the light and then it twists and turns. And in order to support it, she has developed a massive scaffolding for it involving shoelaces, um, ribbons, and an odd kind of hammock style contraption, which she's created for this her pride and joy, her beautiful plant. And so she's always per- repurposing items for um, new creations. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I can't even imagine I can't even explain what she does but it's amazing and it's continual yeah we've got this kind of way of turning things upside down so I was technician in East London Makers for a while and I had just moved house and I was throwing my old bed out and it was one of those really cheap beds that was you know those beds that are in two parts and then you have a mattress on top mm-hmm. and the bottom parts are on wheels yeah so I took all the bits apart, and I um, used those um, newsprint board blotters, and I made it into a mobile drawing rack for the studio that we still use, <laughs> so, kind of like, and I made a shoe rack into a plate drying device, so I kind of, I don't know, I think I do the same thing as her. Yeah, yeah, well,
0: you I, know, just hearing you say it, of course, it reminds me of, but it is kind of a false either or isn't it the you either your math in science or your artistic when really to excel at either you need to have a
1: creative mind and you need to be able to problem solve yeah I think you're right there yeah there are a lot more overlaps and there's a, a lot of mystique about scientists being you know the holders of the secrets of life and artists being dreamers and you know, and in fact, when I, the more I've come into the art world, I've realized there's a lot of scientific rigor in art making. And a lot of scientists have this kind of intuition or um, follow creative solutions. So I definitely think there is that overlap for sure.
0: Yeah. What do you mean by scientific rigor
1: in art making? So there seems to be a, a pursuit of... Well, for example, there's a massive pursuit of a f- a theoretical rigid framework for defining printmaking, you know, and then people will put theories forward. For example, they'll say, "Oh, printmaking, you know, it's a multiple, but um, each object is potentially authorized by the creator." Perhaps we could parallel this with um, how a conductor and a symphony is related to the composer. And then they go through a massive intellectual and theoretical and ontological um, evaluation of a very small uh, kind of attitude or perception of what printmaking can be. And that rigor is so scientific mm-hmm. and uncreative in fact because it's trying to find and define and pigeonhole and put into words a very loose and open um, making practice and I find that quite interesting you know that if you get into those very scientific um, conversations at symposium level international conference level you realize that there seems to be a very big urge to kind of Rationalize or um, you know professionalize what's seen of as quite a loose um, artistic um, field. Yeah, so it seems to be like a, an overlay of I don't know, maybe a bit of insecurity, mm-hmm. <laughs> but without sounding too mean, you know I think people are a little bit um, nervous that they'll be seen as soft and vague and. Um, you know, optional. Yeah,
0: and I, I wonder if how much of that comes from the fact that so much of printmaking is wrapped up in academic fields and it takes place in academic institutions. And so often we're being asked to justify our existence, to justify our funding. Mm. And if that's just kind of crept into the everyday dialogue about printmaking is, is to rationalize our existence in terms that one might
1: find in STEM almost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's this, um, there, there's, there's the same criteria. So that's why artists are being forced to speak perhaps in that the way that, um, ticks boxes and and fulfills you know outcomes and objectives Mm -hmm. and I but but for sure we're incredibly productive when we don't you know without having to step back and talk about creativity I think the creative arts are incredibly productive um, and you know produce enormous quantities of outcomes that would satisfy Um, all these criteria if we didn't have to step back and say that they're satisfying criteria (laughs) that's how I feel
0: yeah yeah because that's um yeah because you you're pretty recently back from impact then aren't you must be
1: just a few days yeah impact was you know interesting because there are a lot of people in the university field or maybe at phd level or above and the pressure is for them to talk about you know they talk very poetically, of course, um, but I always find there's a bit of a mismatch between what they're talking, what they're saying, and what they're making physically and it, what they talk about doesn't necessarily mean to say it feeds into beautiful work mm-hmm. so I found it um, a bit of a mixed mixed bag yeah, some gorgeous poetic speakers with some i don't know. I can't say without upsetting people. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and then some beautiful, beautiful work that was not spoken about. And I Mm -hmm. thought, wow, maybe we should have a rule that nobody talks about their own work. Oh, yeah. That would make these conferences much more interesting. Yeah. Because some of them are veiled veiled, um, publicity. You know, they kind of go. Mm. And then I did this, which... You know, and then they link it to a million philosophers, and it's all really sounds gorgeous. And then you look at the work and you think, hmm, I wouldn't be saying that. Maybe we should change these things. Yeah, but I had fun. I I don't want to say that it wasn't fun. It was really inspiring because there are some people with such ambition and such vision that you question your own culture and your own um, boundaries. So I've set myself boundaries, and they're all very small. I'm making really domestic, small, intimate, throwaway work at the moment, and then I look at grand, gestural, crazy work, and I think you could also do this. That's
0: that's interesting that you bring up kind of the new way that you're going right now with your work because I've been really loving it. Your small little narrative personal linos I they have a a wonderful intimacy and playfulness about them I think that's that, that I've loved
1: anyway yeah I it's I don't know how to say it like I just started making them for one person to see and I didn't really but but because we have social media In a way, my audience or my window has been Instagram or Facebook. And, you know, but they're really supposed to be just to make my dad laugh. Mm. Like that was the whole point of making them. So there's this, well, in terms of scientific rigor, going back to scientific rigor, I had these really strict parameters for making. I just thought I'd make, um, there'd be a certain size So they're all 15 by 20 centimetres and they only have two blocks, So a maximum of two colours. And I'm in almost every print. So because they're for him, they're from my point of view or I'm in it. And there's that kind of, um, I don't know how to say it, like it's, um, well, you know, the father daughter. Thing you, I I'm skirting around issues of sexuality and um, you know I'm still the good girl in mm. I'm the good daughter I'm a quite I'm a sanitised version a comical version, um of who I am so my it's there's still a veil it's I'm it's still a performance the performance is you know for someone who I want to cheer up yeah and. Conversation with but it's um it's not as innocent and as carefree as I'm really feeling there's still a, an artifice behind it yeah but yeah I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying them
0: um would you uh would you want to talk a little bit about your father and how his life has recently changed and how that's sort of affected you and and your practice
1: yeah i i think um yeah that's the the background that, to the series um so I haven't really got a proper name for the series, but i've been calling them my diary prints or little liner cuts and I started making them so because well it's a really long story where do i start <laughs> so I, I've always had a close relationship with my dad, and I went to college and decided to make a film at college because, you know, I wanted to learn new techniques. And I thought I'd make a film about how my dad is still a bodybuilder at the age of 75, and my mom is a very outspoken and creative um, tai chi. Um, you know, she's really into tai chi. And I thought, well, we never see expats or non-white elderly people on the screen in the UK. So I want to put them in the center of the, of the frame. I started filming my dad, and this appealed to his vanity. So he said he was going to go out jogging a little bit more in order to build his body up so that he would look even better on, on the screen. And it was during one of his jogging sessions on a Saturday morning that he tripped and fell against a tree and broke his neck and this tragedy um, has meant that he hasn't been able to stand or walk since, so he changed his life in a catastrophic manner, Um, you know, six weeks after I started making this film about his physical um, abilities. So. You know, when a tragedy like that happens, he he didn't die, but he wanted to die, and he's been quite depressed, you know, he's been looking at his function for being in the world, and it's, you know, there's not very many reasons to keep going. And so, since he's been in a care home, well, since he's been in this system, you know, the healthcare system, which has been looking after his day-to-day needs and his survival, um, he's just withdrawn from finding out anything about um, life outside because it just reminds him of what he's missing. Mm. And so I spent years going to see him every week or even more in the beginning. We spent a lot of time there. Um, And the conversation has always been on the day-to-day or on very, very limited topics. And this is a guy who used to be such a joker. He was a very funny he loved, he loved to make puns and terrible jokes and goof around with people. So I wanted to start this series of prints in order to continue the conversation after I'd gone and to give him some kind of visual um, object to focus on that would maybe um, lift him out of his kind of depressed state. Whether it works or not is a different matter. But I wanted to get, bring humor and comedy into it. And um, at the same time, when I started studying five years ago, I thought to myself about what I wanted to explore in visual imagery. And I thought, well, I want to explore sex and humor. (laughs) And so my college work was all about sex, it was about bodies and touch, and I wanted to make this kind of blurry thing. And so after I finished that project, I thought, well, humor is the next thing, I wanted to see if I can make something funny. Um, without being naturally I'm not like a funny person not very good at jokes Mm -hmm. but to make visual puns to make funny things so I wanted to see if I could do humor that's the that's the backstory a little bit
0: it's wonderful to hear it told in a narrative because um you know I just sort of seen your the way your practice has changed and Heard about your story, kind of from bits and pieces, and picked it up from reading your blog and going back. and I've never actually heard it told in a in an X plus Y equals Z kind of manner. So, with the the film that you you mentioned, you were making is that the Stoke Junkie? Yeah,
1: Stoke Junkie. Yeah. Um, it was um, just because for the past maybe six or seven years, my mom's health has been declining rapidly. And she has been preoccupied on a day-to-day basis with saying in quite a funny way that she wants to die. Mm. Okay, And she wants a happy death. And so, you know, for a while she would entertain us on tales of how she would find um, some kind of drug dealer somewhere in Oxford who might be able to provide her with enough (sighs) of whatever it was normally something really like cannabis like I don't think you'll die if you have that much and she'd be like (laughs) no I'm sure they can I'm sure they can sort it out for me I said I'm going to get them to get me something something you know and and she'd say kind of with lots of conviction and humor about how she's going to kill herself (laughs) so that's the backstory she's the junkie and in, you know, after quite a lot of, um, ill health, my dad finally retired to look after her. And, and he said, look, when, when people retire, they die. They normally die two years after they retire and I'm going to donate my body to science anyway. So that's what's going to happen to me. Um,
0: <laughs> and so
1: that was something I had to film cause it was so funny. It was like two older people just not really knowing how the end of life happens mm-hmm. and, um, poking fun at each other in this very dark way, um, not knowing that actually there's a bit more time to go and a bit more suffering. You know, it's something I didn't know would happen, but it was a a way of displacing emotions from the tragedy and just becoming as objective as possible.
0: I was going to ask if if actually becoming the documentarian was a way to process or at least maybe put off processing when it's necessary what was happening which is which of course was a completely unforeseen horrible thing.
1: Yeah for sure I think making is a really good way of stepping out of your of the moment or or you step into the moment and you forget about the future and the past actually. Mm. And so I would just be completely focused on what they were saying or doing and not care about the implications so much until later. But it was pretty painful. I didn't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I was making in order to fill my time so I didn't have to reflect, Mm. you know.
0: That's really significant because it's, you know, I think anyone who's, who's, studied meditation or done anything like that you realize that pain comes from either the future or the past reflecting on something that could have been or reflecting on something that is painful that's happened to you or worrying about something that's going to but the moments when you can make yourself stay present are the ones where you can find that equilibrium of peace
1: that's such a nice
0: way of putting it I completely agree. Yeah, I'd also, I'd love to um, maybe talk a little bit more about the animals in your work, you know, kind of to speaking about it, you know, as being a vet and that connection with your dad and the animals in your work was probably one of the first things that drew me to what you do because they appear, at least from my point of view, in your work in a way that you don't usually see animals in art. They're never there. Oh really? Yeah. Oh. They they're never there okay. kind of just aesthetically. Um, cuz I think you know there's a long long history, you know, back from a, you know cave painting is animals yeah. for their for their beauty and their elegance and their um, just their almost their decorative value. But when mm-hmm. they show up in your work, their flesh and their bones and their sex and their blood, and they're so real. And when, when I found out that you, of course, had trained as a veterinary surgeon, that made a little bit more sense, but they're not romanticized or used as decoration in the same way as you often see them. And I've always loved that about the animals in your
1: work. Oh, thank you so much. So kind of (laughs) you to say that. No, I definitely see them as protagonists. So they have a very specific character or purpose or intelligence or um, role to play in the images. And they're just like another being. So in the I I normally work you've probably seen I work in series and I'll do one project and then I finish it and then I move on to the next project and then I finish it and sometimes um the work looks like it jumps massively from series to series and then I'll come back a loop back to that original thing maybe a few years later and so one of my earlier series was the spirit and guardian series where there's a kind of A female figure with an animal in front or holding or being embraced in a sort of ambiguous manner, they could be um, equal, communing souls, or um, in some respects, the animal could be a protector of the woman or the female figure. And in other um, images, you're not sure if it's really the woman who's a tender mother figure who's um, embracing you know, something that she's looking after. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that kind of agency of the, of the animal as maybe a, maybe a metaphor for um, the unspoken or the vulnerable or the um, spiritual or the, you know, the kind of deities that we have around us. Maybe it's just a representation of a mysterious other. I quite like giving that or imbuing that into the portrayal of animals. I've never been that interested in how they look. Mm-hmm. I never understood people who have pets who um, just love them for how they look. You know, yeah. But I think it's quite common. Some people love them. They they have really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful cats. Beautiful, mm-hmm. and they love them because they're so beautiful. And it's a very. very um, not really incomprehensible because of course we're all attracted to beauty but it's it's that that's very unattainable it's not the communing of um conversation between souls and between human and animal and the breaking of boundaries it's to do with pure admiration Mm. one's one-sided idealization, and i think that's what happens in maybe the animal the other version of depiction of animals that you perhaps referring to is that you know? For some people, just just admiring beauty is enough.
0: But yeah. I want
1: my animals to have character and soul.
0: Yeah. Well, it is it's especially yeah. one sided if it's a cat. That's for sure. I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, cats! They say, "What is it?" They say that we're we're the cats we're the pets of cats. Mm-hmm. They. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Cats are funny things. They are. Um, but also, yeah, the, the vet job gives me a very privileged insight into what it's like to um, be very close and adore and be connected to an animal, and I see I see um, a lot of different a lot different types of relationship very intimately and people will Mm. some people treat their animals a lot better than they treat themselves and sometimes I wonder if that's um, because they would love to treat themselves that well but they displace that love and affection onto this other being and some people treat their animals like a a commodity you know like a a status symbol Mm, which gives them pride and yeah and then there's a lot of um people for whom there's this wonderful affection and then you see people who maybe grow up with a dog and they're eighteen and the dog's fifteen and they don't remember life without this dog you know so you see people for whom this this individual has you know never existed without this other individual you see that too, and I think it's quite a privilege to be that close
0: mm-hmm.
1: or to witness. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's also a very strange job because, I mean, I think quite creative, but um, you're trying to find solutions very quickly. You have to find where the problem is and then try and find solutions um, and negotiate or navigate an ethical territory. hmm which is about um, our responsibility to pets that we have and where we think suffering lies and where we think, you know, how long do we prolong life? Mm-hmm. And what, what is quality of life? And what, where are our responsibilities in that? So I think it's a very interesting ethical job to consider.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because you must also be dealing with of course, well, of course, you're dealing with the humans, and the baggage that they bring to whatever decisions mm. they're making with their animals, and uh, yeah, do do you find that you need to play therapist or psychologist or
1: psychoanalyst as well? Oh, for sure. I'm not very good at it, but I try. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, somebody that it takes. it's definitely rewarding if you try and figure out the motives or the not the motives because that sounds too um monetary but if you figure out the the vibe behind the owner and their desire for their for their pets and their connection it definitely helps and I've I've come across people who have changed weddings they've postponed weddings Mm -hmm. and people who've deeply mourned a snail or a chicken. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I've met people who um, have used animals in quite a blatant way and threatened to sue, mm. you, you know, any perceived mishap, you know. You, you, it definitely helps to figure out, you know, where their love lies, where their attention is. Yeah, it's,
0: it's such... Such important work that you do, and I'm I'm so glad that you're doing it, because I, I really think that you're one of the most thoughtful and courageous with your words of, of anyone I've ever talked to, and I know we haven't talked very often or very long, but... It's something I've always admired about you. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a bit blunt.
1: (laughs) But I know that if there's something awful to say, you have to say it. (laughs) Yes, I love that though. I admire it so much. It's it's hard, isn't it? Because um, when you you know that the weight of your words can be um, something that someone will mull over for a while, but you can't not say it mm-hmm. in the vet job. I think actually, I, I spend a lot of time comparing the vet world and the art world. And for a while, I was chair of East London Printmakers, which is a cooperative in the workshop, community workshop in um, East London. And I thought I'd run it like a vet practice. <laughs> Because I thought, you know, in a vet practice, everybody has this common goal. And it's unspoken, but it's completely there. And the common goal is to relieve animal suffering. So if you swear that when you, when you um, graduate, they say, I promise I'll do absolutely everything to uphold the welfare of animals. And I thought, well, you know, let's do it for the printmaking world. So the common, <laughs> the common goal is... You know, to um, our goal is actually in our mission statement to provide accessible and affordable printmaking for as many people as possible. You know, ego-free. It's mm-hmm. cool. It doesn't work in the art world. <laughs> you know, there are lots of really lovely people who work in printmaking. And I think printmakers of all the artists I've met, I think printmakers are my tribe because a lot of people share materials, share ideas with no fear that their ideas will be stolen or parodied or destroyed because we all need to um, group together to use big items of equipment and so it, it makes sense for all of us to do that and I thought it would work but it doesn't work in the art world I think partly because we're also trained slightly to rejoice in our own voice you know you've got to have this clear a sense of identity and so if I take on um, a project and then give it to someone else of course the voice will change of course that's something that won't be seamless you Mm. see Mm -hmm. so inherently we can't have a a hippie commune (laughs) um, (laughs) making studio along the same lines as vet practices are often run on that level on that emotional level it doesn't work
0: Um, so I'm just looking we're coming up at the the hour recording mark and one more thing I want to make sure that I ask you so you can say is that uh, where can people find out more about you Um, where can they see your work and get in contact with you
1: oh I got a website which is wunjin.com w-u-o-n g-e-a-n dot com and I try and put pictures on Instagram so I really enjoy Instagram so you can find my Instagram um what do you call it handle Instagram handle is one gin w-u-o-n-g-e-a-n yeah and I made a hashtag called diary of a printmaker great because people don't necessarily know how to spell my name
0: yeah and I can I can definitely speak to your your blog as being just delightful to read and yeah the transparency oh, and, and humor and sort of kindness that's in there. I, I always appreciate. So I can personally recommend going to, um, going to your blog because it's maybe, um, it, I, I think it's better than, and also not your average artist blog. So make sure oh, to check it you. out. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank yes, you. Thank um, you for coming yeah. and joining me. This has been super great. And I hope that you'll come back again when I'm not in my first week of being a podcaster and maybe I'm a little bit better at all of this as <laughs> well. <laughs> you're
1: very good at all of this and you're very warm and you're very genuine. And thank you for your interest and yeah. your enthusiasm. Great. Right, thank you. Yeah. Yeah.